This morning we wrap up our Grace Stories series. We tried last week. It didn't quite work out too well. But uh, these are personal illustrations of lives that have been deeply impacted by God's grace. The previous week, Paul Chandler shared his own grace story of an almost 21-year-old young man. This morning is really part two, as Dave and Elaine, his parents, share a story of God's grace working itself out in their lives. Thanks. Every mother longs for the good health and well-being of her children, and so it seemed for Paul until he was 15 months old. Paul is the youngest of our four children. When our older son, Dan, was about eight, he expressed his desire for a brother. We prayed about it, and the Lord answered with a resounding yes. Then one day, while we were on vacation and sitting in a rental vehicle, I saw Paul's eyes roll back into his head, and he slumped over, unconscious. I grabbed him and ran for help. My sister-in-law was behind me. She saw that Paul had come too and told me that she knew exactly what it was. Her son had had febrile seizures, and that was what happened to Paul, a seizure with fever because of an ear infection. So we knew what that was. Children grow out of those. There was hope. About a month later, however, we found Paul seizing in his crib after going to sleep for the night. He didn't have a fever. That was the start of many 911 calls and many trips to the hospital in the ambulance. One time, the paramedics could not get the IV line into a vein while Paul continued to seize for a half an hour or more. They encouraged us to keep talking to him, talk about a scary situation. They finally succeeded in stopping the seizure. On our trips back home from the emergency room, we would talk to Paul. We were always relieved when Paul would know his colors and behave normally with no ill effects. That in itself is an amazing miracle. When Paul was three years old, things got very strange. By then he was on medication, but his seizures were never completely controlled. During that year, Paul would become ill, first with chicken pox, later with other childhood illnesses. At those times, Paul would start falling down, I mean backwards, hitting his head on the ground. He would recover from the illness and be totally fine. Two to three months would go by, and then he would get sick again. There was one terrifying weekend where Paul had very weird symptoms. He looked frail, pale, and was not walking normally. In fact, he looked like he was mechanical in the way he moved. To me, it looked like he was dying. We made frequent calls to the neurologist, but no one suggested that we go or take him to the ER. I would lay down on the floor in Paul's room while he slept. During the day, my knees would knock and my heart would pound as I was gripped with fear. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me. In response, he gave me a peace that was surreal. I was able to get some sleep. He gave me Psalm 91. For he will command his angels to guard you in all, his way, in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. This has been our prayer for Paul. Did the Lord promise that Paul specifically be always protected and live a long life? We can't answer that. But this passage has encouraged me, and we have 
seen God do amazing things in Paul's life. He has protected him. He has been with him and in trouble. And he is showing him his salvation. We've seen spiritual fruit through these trials. Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Through the years, the Lord, in his amazing wisdom, provided help, providing many resources, always in his timing. While there were many ebbs and flows in our experiences, we were always hoping and praying that Paul would get better. Um, I've been made aware of my tendency to be fearful and about the spiritual battle we are in. I think Satan knows full well my tendency to be fearful about the well-being of our children and the panic that can set in when something seems to go wrong. In fact, we have had our scares with all of our children at times. Eventually, it would all be rectified. Now when something happens again, I wonder, is this another testing? A testing to determine if I will trust God in this situation or succumb to fear. I heard a Christian speaker once speak about this spiritual warfare, how Satan and his forces launch an attack as if the fiery arrows are aimed straight at us. But the Lord puts his hedge of protection around us. When God allows the fiery arrow through that hedge, it is transformed into God's refining fire meant for our good. As many of you know, Paul has had many doctor's appointments and much medical testing, all culminating in two rounds of surgeries, which included six surgeries in total. We've spent weeks and weeks, probably months, in the hospital. The Lord has brought us through all these trials, and the Lord's timing and provisions have been amazing. Another scary time was when I was much younger. At that time, a dear lady, a friend of my mom's, once told me her story. When her husband was very ill, she noticed how frail he looked as she came down the stairs toward him. Fear and panic set in. When the time did come for him to die and be with the Lord, however, she experienced a peace beyond understanding that only the Lord can give. It occurred to her that the Lord gives help at the time it is needed, not before. We need to trust God and not worry. God tells us in his word to cast or throw all our cares on him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. He also tells us that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, Romans 8:38. Concerning the scary times we have gone through, the Lord's presence became more real and his word more clear and personal. It is a comfort to know that the Lord is refining me. He doesn't give up, helping me to trust him, helping me to not be afraid, helping me to depend on him more, and motivating me to pray. Do I still re- react in fear? I still can get a feeling of panic when I hear a strange noise at night. I'm also not to the point of saying, yes, God, send us more trials. But I can thank the Lord that he is in charge and he is taking care of us. Psalm 68.10 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord God our Savior. For each day he carries us in his arms. Everything is under his control and he will carry us through. We don't know what the future holds. For now, Paul is doing amazingly well and we are so thankful And we are thankful for the many prayers of our sisters and brothers in the Lord. As a dear friend of mine says, that is huge. Ultimately, we know that God is good. He is in control. As the words of the familiar chorus go, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. 
Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. I have to admit, even as a Christian, these are words I aspire to, but do not successfully realize each day. Sometimes it's hard to face tomorrow or live without fear, but although these are the realities in my life, they are tempered by the fact that God does hold the future. He does provide for us, loves us, and wants us to cast all our cares on him. We live in a world impacted by sin and its effects. I'm glad there are so many examples in the Bible of people coming to Jesus in faith or on behalf of others or themselves for healing of various issues, whether fever, blindness, deafness, even seizures, to name a few. Jesus, the great physician, could heal them all. What a comfort to know in some cases for a while People experienced a foretaste of a perfect resurrection body when Jesus removed their afflictions. I remember Peter's prayer for my son and for his seizures to go away, acknowledging to God that he can heal him with his word through prayer or by doctors or medicine, and that he experienced a foretaste of the healed resurrection body. We also know that full healing may or may not come in this lifetime because God is sovereign and has his purposes. So we continue to pray and to seek his will and acknowledge our dependency on him. As it says in Acts, it is through him that we live and move and have our being. Indeed, from the microscope to the telescope and everything in between and beyond, it's clearly evident that God is the creation, author of creation, and life, and has a plan for us. As someone said, if there's a creation, there's a creator. If there's a program, just think of what DNA does if you were here in Sunday school. There's a, there's a programmer. If there's a design, there's a designer. Knowing that God is the source for all this, that he is our maker, redeemer, and friend, it gives us hope, especially in the midst of a long-term illness with our son. As many of you heard a couple weeks ago, Paul has known seizures since he was 15 months old. Some medicines seem to help for a while, but some seem to shackle his brain and partially hid from us who the real Paul was. When his first surgery, when we first heard surgery may be the path to go down, inside I felt this was too drastic with an uncertain outcome. But God guided us to a family who had already been down that path, and put us in touch with a great team of doctors. Our view of surgery began to change. We began to see God leading in this direction, and a a sense of peace started to build. We were reminded of the scriptures that tell us God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. Since his first surgery, we've seen Paul's mind unshackled. Gone are the days of riding in a car in silence, or having a one-way conversation. Maybe the section that was removed was inhibiting normal brain function, but at any rate, we see a son much more engaged in conversations, as many of you have already seen. We've also seen an increase in his motivation and learning. But the greatest outcome over all these years is seeing Paul draw closer to the Lord. If that were the only thing we saw through this journey, it would be enough. Although there were positive results from the first surgery, a second was needed since the seizures seemed to come back with a vengeance after five or six weeks. 
God provided hope again when the doctors told us they had a new procedure they learned about through the Cleveland Clinic and even brought Paul's records there to discuss with doctors who were already performing this procedure. Paul was a perfect candidate. Here again, we could rejoice at the outcome. Paul has been seizure-free since the September surgery, with the exception of one time when his dosage was mixed up. And he's showing more calmness, wisdom, humor, and focus in his life than ever. His prayer life amazes me. Even before meals, he prays so long, you think the food would need to be reheated. <laughs> Paul does have plans to live a life less dependent on his parents with hope of, hope of thriving, having a job that can sustain him and a family someday, Lord willing. We know that God supplies our needs and directs our paths. Most of Paul's life, we've been praying for God's healing and leading in his life, and the journey continues. We're so thankful for your prayers and encouragement we've had along the way, how God provides and how wonderful the results are we're seeing. I want to again express uh, my appreciation that Dave and Elaine came back after our dress rehearsal last Sunday during the ice storm, but it really is a ministry to us for them to be here sharing this great story. So uh, would you bow with me as I pray again? Father, we are truly thankful for your grace, powerfully at work in the Chandler family. It's at work, Lord, demonstrating Jesus, demonstrating the perfect promises that you make as Father, despite the evidence, the circumstances, the signs that we would interpret. You are a good God. Your protection because of Jesus. Your promise of resurrection from the dead uh, is given certainly to all who trust in you. And we're thankful, Father, for the comfort that we can glean from the gospel. We're thankful for the work that it has done in Paul's life and Dave and Elaine's as parents entrusting their, their son to you. We pray for much more, Lord, evidence of healing and wholeness, body and soul, until the day of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, in my years of pastoral ministry, I've never gotten a chance to um, have a do-over on a sermon. It took an ice storm and its perfectly bad timing and uh, a shortened worship service. Actually, 59 of us were here on Sunday, and we, we had a shortened version of this morning. Before Monday morning, somebody asked me if they were going to get a chance to hear the Chandlers, and I initially said no, and then realized, why not? And uh, here's our collective do-over. Um, and uh, if my devotional is better than last week's, 58 of you may very well call for more do-overs uh, to get the, the better version of, of the message. You, you listen to a story like that, is it not heartbreaking to even imagine a mother or father of a 15-month-old baby with seizures? Is it not heartbreaking to even imagine over the years and months 
hoping that it won't happen again, but it does. Hoping it's the last time, but realizing that every time it happens again, the chances are less that it's going to go away. Chances are higher that it's going to be a lifelong struggle. I can't imagine that. We need to look to Scripture to help us understand how a sovereign God can still bring good, including a grace story, out of that kind of trial. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we give an amen to that. But then he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And that gives us pause because we tolerate suffering. We pray that when it comes, it'll go away quickly. We don't rejoice in suffering. It's bad. We only rejoice in good stuff. Paul explains, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Just a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you on the progression from suffering to hope. One thing suffering can bring about is greater clarity and focus in life. Think of the guy who is told that he has a year to live. All of a sudden, he stops wasting time with the trivial because he knows he needs to focus on family, on significant relationships. He knows that he's about to meet his maker and one of those significant relationships that he very well may spend a lot more time focusing on is in his relationship with God, making sure he's right with God. For the Chandlers, their focus meant that the greatest desire that they had for their son has been his salvation and the spiritual fruit that comes through that transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Their real hope for him has skipped over a lot of the trivial stuff we so easily waste our time chasing after. And their hope aims at the very um, real eternal promises of God that culminate in resurrection, which alone promises the renewal of body and soul. Real hope. That helps us understand a little bit of how Dave and Elaine could possibly keep trusting in the goodness of God, even in the face of discouraging medical reports. Suffering tends to expose false sources of hope. Suffering shows that we're looking that what we're looking for horizontally can only be found vertically. When our so-called hopes are snatched away, when what we place our desires on aren't there and we struggle with disappointment and pain, one of the benefits of suffering is it shows we never should have been looking this way for that hope. We can only look this way, to God and His promises. But suffering can so easily lead to the opposite of a grace story, can it? Next week we start a new sermon series. How about this? Resentment stories. We'll just balance out the three grace stories that we had. You know what? It wouldn't be very difficult to fill the, the, the lineup, wouldn't You'd all have some resentment stories to share. Um, far more easily found, unfortunately, than... Grace stories. Why, why does that happen? One reason is that when we pray, so often, perhaps almost always, we already know what we're asking for. 
we know what we want to see as the shape of the answer to our prayers. Dear God, would you mind blessing me? And what I mean by blessing is the perfect job and a wonderful spouse and perfectly polite kids and great health until I'm ready to meet you at a very ripe old age. We're praying to God who is almighty, who's perfectly wise, and we feel the need to tell him how to do his job really well, right? Dear God, I trust you, but you know what? What I really mean is I trust myself. I worship you because you're wise. What I really mean is I am the wise one, and if only you'd listen to me better. Doesn't it sound silly when we put it in those words? That's our attitude so very often that makes it very easy for the soil of our hearts to give rise to a resentment story rather than a grace story. Behind the temptation towards resentment in the face of suffering is a sense that God owes you something. That you don't deserve what has happened. That he's holding out on you. And perhaps he's not really a good God after all. If you wonder how in the world someone could keep believing in God in the face of these circumstances, you probably have what I will call a utilitarian view of God. Your faith is maintained as long as God is useful. As long as he does something for you, as, as long as um, he brings you benefits that you find acceptable. Utilitarian view of God. I'll keep you around, God, as long as you kind of satisfy my demands. Isn't that silly? If he is God and we are not, if he is holy and infinite and eternal and we are sinful and finite. Here are some reasons I'll suggest for... Um, roots of these attitudes that give rise to resentment stories. There's an overemphasis on um, four factors. Okay, we could probably come up with eight, but I'll just give you four. Four factors. There's an overemphasis on the temporal, here and now, not eternity. That's <laughs> too far off in the future. I don't know exactly what that's going to entail. I want it now. That's what we say in our prayers. That's what we say when we trust God and we wait with patience on his perfect timing. What I mean by patient is now. There's an overemphasis on the physical and the material. You want to be able to count it, to touch it, to taste it, smell it, experience it with natural senses. Yeah, 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 supernatural stuff. I want to be able to put it in front of me um, and, and look at it. There's an overemphasis on the local. All you can see is your little life and what happens uh, to you. There's very little sense of greater good of others' lives being affected for the better of God's redemptive purposes throughout all of human history being greater than your purposes for your little own life. And what wraps this all up is uh, the self-defined. We touched on it already. You will be the judge of whether God and his answers to your prayers and his provision of blessing is good enough. You've put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis says, on the witness stand, and you're cross-examining him, and you will decide whether he is good enough or not. And so suffering ends up driving so many of us away from God rather than towards God and his greater hope, his real hope that he promises as the Chandler family has testified. 
drawing closer to God, claiming his promises in Psalm 91, despite the evidence of medical reports. Resentment and suffering so often shows that what you're really hoping in is yourself and not God. Could it be that God allows suffering sometimes to destroy in you what would otherwise destroy you? Can I say that again? I need to hear it. Could it be that sometimes God allows suffering to destroy in you something that would otherwise destroy you? And it's an act of mercy, not judgment, not sternness, not a consequence for your sin. It's love, like your pride at succeeding at the game of life. That'll kill you. That, that will destroy you from the inside. It will corrode, like your sense of self-sufficiency, your temptation to listen to the whispers of Satan in your ear that you're doing just fine all by yourself. What do you need God for? What has he done for you? You're the one who worked hard, got through school, um, worked uh, you know, at night to pay the way, and, and you put in long hours. Those are the lies of self-sufficiency that Satan would love for you to believe. God will put that to death out of love. And so chronic illness is exhausting. Some of you know that. Painfully. Unemployment is agonizing. Others of you know that. A breakup breaks your heart. But what really brings the worst of pain is a life lived apart from God without the power of his Holy Spirit. Johnny Erickson Tata is an author and speaker some of you know of. She's in her 60s now. Since she was 17 years old, she's been paralyzed from the neck down. She's a quadriplegic. She knows something about suffering. And she writes this. I didn't put it up, but we'll get to this scripture passage that you see here. Do you know who the truly handicapped people are? They're the ones, and many of them are Christians, who hear the alarm clock go off early in the morning, throw back the covers, jump out of bed, take a shower, choke down breakfast, and zoom out the front door. They do all this on automatic pilot without stopping once to acknowledge their creator, their great God who gives them life and strength each day. Christian, if you live that way, do you know what James 4, 6 says? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And who are the humble, she asks. They're people who are humiliated by their weaknesses, catheterized people whose bags spring leaks on somebody else's brand new carpet. I think she knows something about that. Immobilized people who must be fed, cleansed, dressed, and taken care of like infants. Once active people crippled by chronic aches and pains, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God in your affliction, and he will draw near to you. James 4, verses 6 through 8. Take up your cross daily and follow the Lord Jesus. You know, Johnny Erickson is not looking for pity. Nor is she glorifying a life of suffering. She's not saying, be like me. What she is saying is a warning. She's giving a warning about the danger of a suffering-free life. Because the tendency is just to go about our daily um, business thinking we don't need God. There's nothing more dangerous 
than the thought that you could live a life apart from God without the power of His Holy Spirit. And Johnny Erickson Tata has no choice to be dependent. She's reminded minute by minute of her humble state. She doesn't have much to be proud of in terms of accomplishments, physically at least. She's got a sharp mind and a, a, a spirit that looks more like Jesus because of her suffering. Uh, listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you think a loving God would bring you close to death in order to show you how dependent you are created to be upon him? You better believe it. And Paul says, you know what? God can raise the dead. Even if God allowed me to die, so be it. The same God not only will rise, raise the dead, but he will reverse paralysis. He will remove seizures once and for all. He will make right everything wrong in your life as you trust in Jesus, the risen Savior who has conquered sin and death and every other consequence of sin. Samuel Rutherford is quoted by John Piper in his book, A Godward Life. And Rutherford says this, If God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world, and then had told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet... How is his wisdom demonstrated even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps. And then you would throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. You, you see what Rutherford's saying? When you and I put your, our hope in something that does not deserve that kind of hope, it can't stand up under the pressure. It's like we idolize the flame of a lamp and we think there's nothing more beautiful. And we never leave the room. And somebody loving would come by and go, look outside. That's the next level of glory. Would God remove from you your false hope, which we would call suffering, right? Pain comes into our life. Struggle comes into Would he do that? out of love to show you something more glorious. Pastor John Piper adds this prayer. Oh, how I pray that when God in his mercy begins to blow out my lamps, I will not curse the wind. That's the resentment story that Piper is wise enough to say, please God, don't let me go there. Notice what he says. Not, I pray that God in his judgment against me he didn't say that. He didn't say, I pray that God in his discipline of me, a sinner. He didn't say that either. He says, I pray that God in his mercy, in his loving kindness, when he brings suffering into my life, when he blows out the, the idolatrous lamp that I think is beautiful, but I know has nothing compared to him, I pray that I would be filled with the spirit, be given spiritual eyes to discern, yes, Lord, thank you. This is grace. You and I needed to hear this grace story. And we need to learn 
that our greatest need is not better evasive techniques to avoid suffering. That's what we tend to think. Our greatest need is not um, a charmed life. It's not a genie like God who will answer our prayers exactly the way we want them to be answered. Our greatest need is dependent faith that leads to a richer relationship with Jesus Christ, the victorious King. Our greatest need is to know that this Jesus suffered hell on the cross so that we, through faith in him, might not ever have to suffer the ultimate suffering. We need to learn to suffer better, not avoid it, because it will come. We need to learn how to persevere in faith in the midst of whatever suffering God allows us to experience so that we can grasp more firmly the real hope that only Jesus offers. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to pick up our heads, to see beyond our little selves, to see the world, to see your purposes, to glimpse your glory. Father, we thank you for examples to learn from, like Johnny Erickson Tata, like the Apostle Paul, like the Chandler family stories. Show us, Lord, that suffering is not the way you intended life to be, but because this world is fallen and our sin contributes to it, because suffering will come until Jesus wipes it all away in his return. Until then, Lord, let us see how suffering can be used by you to make us more like Jesus, the suffering servant. We pray this in his name.